But the biggest learning I think I got, Angela, was when I was asked uh, to be the executive sponsor for our Asian Business Research Group. And this is where I had to kind of confront my own biases, right? I just didn't think I had you know, enough of a connection or had anything to share. And boy, was I wrong. I was embraced and I learned so much. That was Rod Cotton, Senior Vice President and Head of Strategy and Transformation for Roast Diagnostics, reflecting on his learnings and influence on diversity, equity, and inclusion over the course of his impressive 40-plus year healthcare career as he prepares for retirement this month. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So, Rod, thank you so much for joining us this month on the next episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum. We're so excited to have you here. Will you start by telling our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that have led to you becoming the Senior Vice President and Head of Strategy and Transformation for Roche Diagnostics? Absolutely. But first and foremost, Angela, let me thank you for the kind invitation to join your groundbreaking and award-winning podcast. And thank you for the contributions that you're making to our community through this vehicle. I think what you're doing is terrific. You know, I happen to know a couple of your past guests, uh, Kim Thomas and and uh, Rafael Sanchez. And so I'm so looking forward to participating and to sharing my story. So I guess I should begin by saying that I was born and raised in Los Angeles in Southern California. And um, I want to step back a bit and say it precisely South Central Los Angeles. So mm. South Central is in the house today. Right. <laughs> so uh, I'm a city boy, but I've been infused with a lot of traditional Southern behaviors and values. And I know that's important to you because I know you were born in Kentucky. I'm a country girl. Yeah. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm definitely a city boy, like I said, but both, unlike your parents, both of my parents are from Alabama and both were educators but my father, he actually became an electrician when he got to Los Angeles because he was a sergeant in the army and a teacher. And when he got out there, he says, these kids are not like respectful like they are in the South. And if I stay here and stay a teacher, I'm going to be in jail. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he decided he was going to change uh, professions. But that does give you a peek into like, you know, our ho- household because they ran a tight ship. And, you know, there were two house rules. They said, you have to be the best, be the best in whatever it is you do. That's what my father said, be the best and then get an education. And I could still hear the words of my mom ringing in my ears. Um, she said, son, get all the education you can, because once you get it in your head, can nobody take it out? So what did I know? I mean, I just, that was what I did. I set out to do just that and, um, you know, become a lifelong learner. I think it's evidence in the fact that I have two bachelor's degrees. So I have a, a bachelor's degree in biology like you and also in sociology and technology. I have two master's degrees, one uh, MBA and the other one a master's of science and strategic management. And then from a lifelong learner standpoint, I've always throughout my professional career, gone back and, and taken more executive education programs and certificate programs. So I've taken numerous ones, but uh, three that I would like to call out was uh, completed uh, ones in biotechnology and becoming independent board director, which is my current quest, as you know, and also uh, mergers and acquisitions. And so, um, and I've gone to the best schools around the world. And so really, Angela, I think that's really prepared me to create, you know, a distinguished healthcare career that spans 42 years as a senior executive in biotech and pharma for four different Fortune 50 companies. 
I'm on the board of directors for a $60 million health tech um, services software company called Orchard Software. That's owned by Francisco Partners. I'm on the board of directors for a $3 billion health system here in town, Community Health Network. And uh, I'm an advisor for one of the schools uh, at Meharry Medical College, the School of uh, Computational and Applied Statistics at Meharry, which is, as you know, the oldest black medical college in the country. And so I really just feel blessed to have been able to go on this journey and to watch different people and learn from the people that I've seen on this journey, because I definitely didn't go through this journey on my own. I've had a lot of encouragement and a lot of support. And I really feel blessed in light of the fact that, as I shared with you earlier, I've announced my intention to retire from Roche after 22 years there and, of course, 42 years in the industry. So <laughs> that's that's my background and story. <laughs> that is just fantastic and it's so fascinating. And I appreciate you starting there and sharing that with us. We have a lot of commonalities, even though you're a city boy and I'm a country girl. But those nuggets from your parents, get all the education you can get, be the very best you can be at whatever you... That has driven me my whole life as well. So I can absolutely appreciate that. So you've talked about, you know, all these medical institutions or healthcare institutions that you've been involved with over the course of your career. But you started off as a sales rep, right? And then went to operations and then have found your way kind of weave and wind up through executive leadership of these four major healthcare companies. That's a really serious and impressive career progression. And so I'd like to ask you, you know, when you started off in this career path, what did you aspire to do? And were you aware of all the career opportunities in your field? Or were you like me that just kind of learned as you went and were exposed to different opportunities and said, okay, let's, let's do that. And when did you realize that you had such a unique opportunity to lead and have influence in the healthcare space and in the executive leadership space, well beyond selling of the products, but really driving the company, the strategies, the initiatives. When did all that become relevant and obvious to you to make you push for such an awesome career that you're soon to retire from? Great question. Um, I have had a lot of family pressure in, in my life to become a doctor. Yeah. Right? And so a lot of the men on my father's side of the family, on my, I guess it was my paternal grandmother, uh, a lot of the brewers, so to speak, they were doctors. And so my father's oldest brother, my uncle Sam, was a practicing physician in Los Angeles. He was the OBGYN. And my father's a twin brother. And so like my my father, my father and his twin brother, neither became doctors, but they were you know conditioned to do that. But my father's twin brother, who's about three years older than me, he's a practicing physician in Atlanta. So there was immense pressure for me to go to medical school and become a doctor and take over my uncle's practice in, in LA. But I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. Like I, I felt like <laughs> that's what my family wants me to do, but that's not what I want to do. And I thought it was important for me to do what I wanted to do. And so all my classmates, we were all pre-med, right? And while they were taking the MCATs, I was secretly taking the GMATs, the LSATs, the, the GRE, because yeah. I was like, I'm doing something different, right? Yeah, yeah. So needless to say, when I announced to my father and my uncle that I was not going to med school, that was not a good day in the Cotton household. Right, trust right, me. Right. They were jamming me up. They were like, you're not going <laughs> to achieve anything. You're not going to do anything. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was incredible. And uh, they even stopped talking to me for a period. But thank goodness for my mom and my aunt who provided, you know, the love behind that challenge. 
And they were like, baby, you're going to do it. And so, of course, I, I had to prove the men wrong, right? And so to use my biology degree, I got a job right out of college as a sales rep for Burroughs Welcome. And uh, then I, I moved to Smith, Pine and French. And, you know, I, I mean, those jobs, I think my first job paid me $14,000 a year. And I moved to Smith Klein because I could get up to close to $25,000 a year, but that wasn't, neither was really a lot of money. But at that time, it seemed like a lot of money. And so, true to form, to be the best, I became the top salesperson for each one of those companies. And even though I was doing well, though, like I said, I've been a student of people and I just looked around and all these, my colleagues were 30, 40 years older than me. And I just said, you know, I can't see myself doing this for 30 years. Like, right. this is a great job, but I just don't see it. And so I decided that I was going to go back to school and get an MBA, get my degree in business. And I took my first marketing class and I was hooked. It yeah. was Nirvana. I'm like, this is what I was supposed to be doing. Right. And so I just decided I was going to work hard in that field. And of course, coming inside into an office structure from being outside in sales. I mean, if you're in sales, you're dealing with doctors and salespeople. But when you're inside, I got a job as an associate product manager. You know, I was dealing with marketing and regulatory and legal and all those different kind of areas. And it just kind of expanded, you know, my my purview after I finished that MBA. And so it gave me, and even though I had some overcome some obstacles like along the way to get kind of, you know, those learnings under my belt. I worked hard and I just mastered it. And then I decided I'm going to go back to school and get a second master's. And I did that. And this time I focused in on distribution channels and I used my thesis to leverage myself into a job in the distribution arena and was able to take a product that was an IGIV product for immune you know, people with immune deficiencies. It was, uh, you know, for immune compromised people. And it was immune serum globulin and it was languishing. It wasn't really doing well. And by opening up the distribution channels, I was able to, we were, my team and I were able to kind of take it to a, over a million dollars in sales in less than a year. And that obviously got me noticed. And then I parlayed that into a job as a national account manager where after a couple of attempts, I failed a couple of times, but, you know, then was successful at negotiating the first bundled plasma fraction agreement with uh, what was then called American Healthcare Systems. Now it's Premier Hospital Alliance, but it was over a hundred million dollar agreement. And, you know, I still have the, you know, it was before kind of centralized communications and everything. So I still have the uh, the article in the Wall Street Journal that was permaplaced and my mom had it permaplaced. It's hanging on my wall, but that got me noticed. And, and actually I was promoted to the position of vice president of corporate accounts at the age of 32. Wow! So I picked up and I moved from LA to Chicago and that really kind of set the stage for my ongoing success at both Baxter and then later at Roche. Yeah, that's fantastic. Again, so many nuggets, but I really appreciate because having that biology degree and the pressure to go pre-med because, you know, I always thought that's all my family knew. You get a biology degree, that's got to mean you're going to be a doctor. But you actually came from a family of doctors. I'm sure there was immense pressure to go that route and, and very serious challenges when you decided that that wasn't the path you're going to go. But I mean, I think the nugget here is you do have to find your own way, right? Find what you're passionate about because 42 years is a long time. <laughs> Whatever long time. it is you're going to be doing, you need to be passionate about it. So I I appreciate that. And thank you for sharing that. I want to ask you about being a diverse male in the healthcare industry. And again, an executive leadership in the healthcare industry. I know from my experience, I feel pretty confident that you probably sit in many rooms 
where there are no or very few folks that look like you and I. And in fact, while I often focus on the experiences of diverse women, because that's what I'm familiar with, I'm sure that there are many challenges that are specific for diverse men, particularly in the Indiana business community, which you've been in for quite a few years. Um, And so I've spoken with other guests about some of those challenges and some of those issues that particularly diverse men face in executive leadership in Indiana businesses and communities. And so I'd like to know what has been some of your unique experiences in climbing that corporate ladder at some of the largest healthcare entities in our state and in the nation? And how have you navigated any career limiting obstacles and barriers that you've encountered beyond your family not wanting you to be a doctor? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for that. Yeah, I frequently ask this question in various different formats and and, um, versions and like, Rod, how have you done it? What's been your secret? How have you lasted, you know, 42 years with, you know, not giving up and no scandals? And I guess my answer um, is really to succeed in this way, it comes down to three things. One is you've got to show up well every day, right? And you have to be a good steward of your brand because most people when they enter corporate world, you, you know, you're being watched, right. right? But as a as a black person, as a black man, you are under the microscope, right? And so you just got to know that. So yeah. you have to show it well every day and be a good steward of your brand. Then you got to do the work. Many times people feel like you can take shortcuts, you know, and I'll take a shortcut here, a shortcut there. I, I'll tell you after 42 years, there are no shortcuts, I right? Agree. There are no shortcuts. You do that. You have to do the work. And then I said, uh, lastly, I tell people is that you have to persevere. You have to expect that there are going to be very strong headwinds. There are going to be very strong obstacles. And you just have to persevere. And I'll give you a short story to to um, illustrate that. When I got promoted to you know being a VP for the first time at Baxter, they elevated that position to a president-level position. They said, Rod, you're great and everything, but you're not ready to be a president, right? And so I was kind of out of work at the will. I was you know, kind of on the bubble. And I, but I landed a job as a VP in one of the other divisions. And I was heading up. I was a VP of national accounts. And I went to an industry conference where a couple of my colleagues were standing maybe you know, 20, 30 feet from me. And I could hear them talking and laughing. And I couldn't exactly make out what they were saying, but it looked like they were laughing at me. And sure enough, one of them peeled off and walked over to me, marched up and said, Rod, we've all met and we've decided that we don't like you. We don't like your style and we're not going to support you. Wow. And I'm like, what? Like, you, Whoa. you don't even know me. <laughs> like, you know, what are you talking about? You know, and, and Angela, in that instance, I realized what my father must have gone through mm-hmm. as being hired as the first black man by the county of Los Angeles as a lead electrician what he went through. I mean, just a monicum of what he went through. And I'm like, wow. And But then you got to collect yourself. And yep. You just got to, you know. So Pick I look, yourself off, yeah. off the floor. <laughs> and I said, so first of all, thank you for your candor. And yeah. you must be from the welcome committee. Like I wanted to make a little light of it. you know. <laughs> and, and then I just said, look, you don't like me. You're not, you're not going to support me. You don't like my style. That's all good. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to do a job. And all that's great, but just don't get in my way because if you get in my way, I'm going to go through you. And that set the stage for like our relationship for the last, next little bit. But that story comes full circle a little bit because about three years later, our collective boss got promoted to the president position. And that same person came back to me and said, Rod, <clears throat> we've all met and we've decided we want you to be our boss. We want you to take and become the VP of sales. And 
it's a poignant story and I tell it for your listeners because someone someone out there is facing some things just like that. Absolutely. And I want them to be encouraged, right? I want them to know that they can make it, but they just got to persevere. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say not just my listeners. I think I needed to hear that. So thank you for that. <laughs> I needed that personally. Uh, I just went to a comedy show and the comedian said, hey, this is cheaper than therapy. So sometimes I feel like this podcast is, is really for me more than anyone else. So thank you. I mean, people need to hear that. It's not always going to be easy, right? Just because you've made it to whatever level of success doesn't mean the road was easy. And I think that's what we try to do here is shed some light on the real real things that successful people have had to deal with in order to get to wherever they are. And I appreciate you and so many others being open about the realities. That had to be a shocker at the industry conference to have your peers or colleagues come up and just tell you that straight out. That's a challenge. So we're speaking about challenges. And while most people can appreciate the specific challenges and obstacles that are faced by many executives and leaders, and particularly diverse executives and leaders, not just in Indiana, but everywhere. But of course, we're speaking about Indiana corporations and C-suite execs here in our state, where there's typically not a diverse environment, right? I still believe, because I lived it, that there are specific advantages of being a diverse business leader in environments that don't have that much diversity. I share that vantage point with so many diverse leaders in our city and others, emerging leaders who are coming up, because I think it's important to appreciate that. It can't always be, woe is me. You've kind of got to leverage your power in those environments. So I'll ask you, what unique qualities or characteristics or skills do you have or have you gleaned, earned, received over the time that have empowered your career success to date, despite your diverse background? And what policies or procedural changes are necessary to establish more diverse representation at the middle management and C-suite levels? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a multi-part question and, and it may be a little bit difficult for me to answer this uh, when I think about the first part of your question about the unique qualities. Sure. I would say that I don't have many unique qualities, uh, maybe not even any. I mean, I've as I've worked with different people, I'm a student of people, and I think a lot of the people I've worked with, we have complementary skills or we have the same skills. But what I would say that may separate me from others is my willingness to commit the time and energy to learn any business or any information or any adjacent information that I need to succeed. Mm. And I would also say that another thing that may set me apart for them is no one's going to outwork me. Mm. <laughs> like No one is going to outwork me. Uh, I will commit to working hard and I won't ask anyone to do something I'm not personally willing to do. And so two examples I would share there just for this first part of your question is, you know, when I first got to Roche, one of the CEOs asked me to lead the divestiture of one of the businesses, our DAT business, a drug abuse testing business. And I was shocked. I was like, full disclosure, like, you do realize I've never done a divestiture before. Right. And he's like, Rod, you're a smart guy. He says, you're, you're going to figure it out. And, and just something about him projecting that confidence into me. Yeah. I felt like, yeah, I can do it. And, but I literally had to Google like 
do how to do a divestiture because I had never done it. But I got help from some of the M&A guys from Basel, Switzerland and some of the local, you know, manufacturing guys. And first, my team and I had to turn the business around. So we we actually took the business about $30 million business and we took it from a negative 4% return on sales to a positive 4% return on sales in about seven months. And then we worked to, you know, shop or market the business while we were running it, but also keep things on track and keep rumors down. But we sold it for three times more than anyone thought we could get for it. And that's what got me really focused on M&A work. Because as you know, as an IP attorney, you know, you have the IP agreement, you have the asset purchase agreement, you have the employee services agreement. Those are all three separate but related agreements, but you have to land them all at the same time. And it's hard work, right? (laughs) And so talk about perseverance. I mean, just that. And then I guess the second example is much later in my career, Roche, then CEO asked me to lead the tissue diagnostics or cancer diagnostics business and co-lead the integration. And they had, Roche had done about a $5 billion acquisition of this business, you know, five years earlier, and but it was time to integrate it. And it, and it was integrating a $400 million business into about a $2.5 billion business. And the devil's in the details there. And once again, I had never done this before, but you rely on your team and you learn from other people. We had a 42-member integration team with 28 work streams, and we were told, get it done in a year. Don't disrupt this business and treat all the employees with respect because, you know, when that happens, you usually have to lay some people off. And so we actually moved 17 families from Tucson to Indianapolis. We got it done in a year. And it was tough going. I remember once we integrated, I was then running it. And then we lost like two of our reimbursement codes from Medicare. And we had a $17 million miss the first year. And and we had actually projected a $26 million miss. And we were given allowances, you know, to miss by 20. And we brought the business in at 17. It's the first time ever that I missed by that much, but felt like I had hit a home run, you know. Right, right. But, but those are just two examples. And again, it speaks to the perseverance piece. But your second part of your question was the policy piece. And as I as I contemplate that, you know, I think there are multiple ways to approach that. But I think companies may choose a lot of different options there that are fit for purpose for them. I would say that there are three things that are really what I call critical success factors there. And to me, it's leadership, it's commitment, and it's culture. And I feel, Angela, if you don't have those three things, stop. Recompute, recalculate, you know, rejigger. But if you do, you can proceed. And then to me, the things that you should be looking at are training, particularly in the area of diversity and inclusion and unconscious bias, because that really helps to create that comfort level and help people emphasize or, or empathize, I'm trying to say, empathize with people of different cultures. And then changing your hiring practices, I think, is, is important to make sure that you have a diverse candidate slate and you also have diverse people on the interview panel, because that helps people see the cultural differences and embrace those. And then I would say, finally, you have to have those a viable mentorship and sponsorship program. And that to me helps to solidify and foster relationships. And then, you know, everybody, even our white counterparts, everyone needs to be nurtured and, you know, fed. Mm -hmm. And so the mentorship sponsorship programs, I mean, they're, they're helping with that nurturing that's so needed for our, you know, people that look like you and I. And those are the, those are the things that I think people need to look at. Now, let's take a quick break. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We're back with Rod Cotton, Senior Vice President and Head of Strategy and Transformation for Roast Diagnostics on this Pride Month episode of the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Shout out and acknowledgments to all members of our Indiana LGBTQ plus community who continue to make our Indiana businesses stronger and more inclusive. You mentioned that you didn't think you had uh, unique qualities, but no one was going to outwork you. And I have that same mantra, like, and I say that is from, now you, again, you came from a family of doctors, so I, I didn't come from that. And I've always said my work ethic was often driven by the fact that I didn't come from a pedigree. I didn't have people who could vouch for me and say, oh, give Angela a try. She's the only thing I've really had is the ability and absolute commitment to work hard. If you give me an opportunity, no one will outwork me. And I think that has become over the 20 years that and 40 years that you and I have been doing this, that's become a unique quality because I I don't see that as much where people are just willing to do whatever is necessary to get the job done, whatever that task may be, and to be successful. And so I think that is a unique quality that that you and I probably don't appreciate because it just is status quo, right? It just comes with whatever it is we're doing. But as I as I, and I'm sure you as well, deal more with the younger generation and such. The people who are have that kind of motivation are standouts. They will stand out in a crowd these days in a way that you and I may or may not have back in the day. So yeah. I appreciate that. I think you're right. I think it's, we live in kind of, you know, MTV and now the internet and everything seems like it's instant. So I think people expect the easy route. And when that doesn't happen, then they have this tendency to to kind of give up and they don't see the value in working hard. And yeah. Like you were saying. So. Yes. Uh, again, that's where the perseverance comes from. Right. Yes. You, you've spoken about that multiple times. So despite you being one of the only or few at the highest levels, diverse folks at the highest level of many of these healthcare industries and organizations, as we've mentioned, you've had a long and successful career lasting over 20 years, 40 years, as you mentioned. So now, as you look to wind down during retirement, you have the benefit of history and perspective. We just kind of talked about it briefly. As you look back over the course of your career, how has DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, or the meaning of DEI in the healthcare space evolved over the last several decades that you've been working in this critically important industry? Yeah. Thanks for that question. I think my observation is that 20 years ago, diversity and inclusion in healthcare was primarily focused on increasing diversity in the workplace and creating a more welcoming environment for underrepresented groups. Today, diversity, equity, inclusion, and even the name has evolved a little bit, uh, has evolved in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Amar Arbery. And I think it's grown into, you know, addressing issues of health equity and addressing disparities in healthcare access and outcome and for, for underserved communities, both urban and rural, right? And so I would also tell you as a board member for a major healthcare system in Indianapolis, I'm encouraged by witnessing hospitals acknowledging cultural differences now and trying to increase cultural competencies and patient-centered care in a way that they've never done before. And to make sure that they address like healthcare, you know, provider bias. 
And are we there yet? No, but and but we've come a long ways, and, and I think people now get the link between, you know, quality and cultural competence because you have to treat subpopulation groups differently, right? You can't treat everyone the same, and also I think people, especially in the healthcare space, realize that the overall quality metrics that they're striving for, that actually they're required to achieve by the government, you can't reach those if your subpopulations are not hitting their metrics, right? right. (laughs) So so it becomes really important. But I would just say, you know, just to back up a little bit, I think it's important to, no matter, you know, where you stand in your journey at implementing a strong and viable diversity, equity, inclusion system, you have to make sure that you're creating an ecosystem and a community. And I think that's what we've done at Roche. We've taken, frankly, a lot of the things that we've done at our local level with our um, diversity an equity executive committee for that was targeted for about 5000 people and we've elevated through work that we've done with global dni advocates and we have a lady on a global level she's her name is um Maysoon Ramadan and she's based in the UAE and she's she with the team and I'm on that team have done a phenomenal job there and now we're poised to you know Rosha's Daya and Pharma on a global basis and now we have the opportunity through our dni council to impact a hundred thousand people on you know on that scale, and so um, we have we're poised to hire our first chief diversity global chief diversity officer. We have a local regional one, Candy G. I don't know if you know her. I know her well. She's phenomenal. She's yeah. been at Roche twenty one years, and she's done a phenomenal job. Eight years in, in diversity and inclusion. So um, you know, have to give shouts out to to Candy G and to to my soon uh, Ramadan and many many others, but. We're really working and we're not there yet. We're not doing everything perfectly, but I think, you know, we're seizing the opportunities and, I, and we feel good about the progress that we're making. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I tell everyone, every organization is on their own DE&I journey, right? And where you find them today is not where they'll be in two years or 10 years. So it's great to hear that you are doing so well in like rolling this out and keeping this going for the global community, not just the local community. So as a diverse corporate leader, How have you personally been able to influence, experience, and or elevate DE&I practices at your company and ensure that your rank and file employees, right, at Roche and, and any other subsidiaries you all may have, have a better cultural experience at your company today than they did 10 years from now? What what has been your personal influence on how the DE&I, as you're working with Candy G and some of the others, how, how have you been able to make some influence in that regard? Well, first of all, throughout my career, I've always viewed diversity, equity, inclusion as an essential focal point. And so when I joined Roche uh, 22 years ago, I helped found what was then called Read the Roche Employees of African Descent. It was the first African-American BRG, and that was back in 2002. I was and still am a founding member of the Roche North America uh, DNI Executive Committee, as I just I mentioned the, the work that we've been kind of extrapolating. I was the first male board member on our Women's Leadership Initiative, which is our women's business resource group, and that was back in 2012. But over the years, I've been either an executive sponsor or a serious champion for just about all of our business resource groups, and we've got nine. But the biggest learning I think I got, Angela, was when I was asked 
uh, to be the executive sponsor for our Asian Business Research Group. And this is where I had to kind of confront my own biases, right? I just didn't think I had you know, enough of a connection or had anything to share. And boy, was I wrong. I was embraced and I learned so much. And I, and I really credit our chief HR officer, local chief HR officer, uh, Bridget Boyle. She asked me, she said, Rob, we want you to take on and lean into this Asian BRG. And it was great. First of all, discovered that, you know, there are 47 different ethnicities in the Asian community. And we had many represented in that group. And I would say this with all your diversity and inclusion efforts, you can work internal to your company, but you have to get out in the community too. And so through the Asian uh, BRG, we did work downtown with the Asian Heritage Association. Um, we invited Crick Indy on campus and we did some programming with them. And about two years later, I took that, extrapolated that learning, and I became the executive sponsor for our goal, which was a group of Latinos. And once again, not a monolithic group, a lot of diverse ethnic you know, organizations. I think we had a 10 or 12 represented in that organization. We got out of the community, worked with La Plaza. We, we did stuff for uh, Hispanic American Heritage Month at speakers. I've marched as an ally in several pride parades, you know, with the AABRG. I've been the keynote speaker for um, Black History Month and then worked in the community. I know this is important to you with MePi because I know you're STEM, work with the Urban League. And so, you know, you just have to get out there and be a force for change, not only in your, your campus community, but also in the larger community. And then now that we've done that, like you said, you talked about the global piece. We're proud. I'm like, I was a founding member of the DNI Advocates, this global group that my soon started uh, from the UAE. And it's really been integrating all of these kind of local strategies for diversity into a global strategy. And it's been impactful. But separately, as you as you think about, you know, my, as I reflect on my life's work over 22 years, I've literally mentored hundreds of employees. I've worked with Candy G, our regional chief diversity officer on things like unity circles, which are our open discussion circles. And then finally, in my role as chief of um, head of chief of staff and head of strategy, I've helped our talent development group. We have a program called ADP, Advanced Development, where we hire college students right out of college and bring them in through a two-year rotation. And then we have one for like more mature people in you know five years into their career. It's called the Executive Leadership Development Program or Enterprise De Leadership Development Program. And Chris Makins is on my team. He's a phenomenal leader. If you haven't met him, he's on a couple of boards locally, but he's done a terrific job. We've, we've, each cohort has gotten more and more diverse. And over the last couple of cohorts, we've actually placed three African-American men and one white female into significant sales roles right out of the ADP program, which had never happened before. And so when I reflect on all of those things over 22 years, yeah, I'm proud. But like I said, are we perfect at Rose? Have we done everything we need to do? No, we, we have a lot more to do. But Things have changed so much for the better since I've been, you know, here. And I'm not saying it's all attributed to me. Don't get me wrong. I mean, but I just feel like I've been a part of something special yeah. because a lot of people have bought into this notion that this is value. And it's interesting. Our mantra now and our message now is that DNI starts with me. Yeah. And you talked about the rank and file. You have to get it down to where everyone feels like, okay, I'm going to start 
it's going to start with me. Yeah. And that's got to make you feel so good when you, you know, look over the course of your career, right? You know, you did all the business stuff. The business did great, made a lot of money. But it's those things that really make you proud and make you so thankful for the opportunity. That's the personal influence. You have changed people's lives in ways that you'll probably never know or appreciate. But that that that's what I hope my legacy to be, right? I mean, the business is great and it's absolutely necessary. But empowering people, changing people's lives, letting them know they can do it, they're valued, they're respected. That's fantastic. And so I can appreciate that. You say that one more comment there. When the announcement went out on my retirement, I started getting text messages, emails, you know, uh, chat messages. I mean, my my computer lit up like a ping ball. And, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a be the best kind of guy, right? I'm a hard charging, you know, business guy that drives like bottom line results, right? But at my heart of hearts, Angela, I've always been a people person, yeah. right? And I value people. And so I knew that I had made some impacts on people's lives, but I have I was not prepared for the overwhelming comments and recollections and well wishes and i mean it was it was emotional yeah like, i was like really like that was i was like okay i think i want to retire but i'm like i'm not so sure i mean this is like it was like it was it was a bit overwhelming but you know i just like process a little bit at a time and it just it just makes me feel so grateful yes. to have had that many experiences and to touch people's lives in a way and have them touch mine because it's a two-way street, right? It's not just one way. I mean, I've been enriched. I've been enriched and I am who I am today because of the people I've worked with. But see, that's why I appreciate this opportunity to share these stories because, you know, we talk so much about how challenging it is to implement diversity programs and no question. There are challenges and everything. We've talked about that. But that enrichment, that connection to people, that's what I think is the true value of diversity. For me, it is what makes my life rich. I can only imagine you talked about how you were hesitant to be involved with the Asian BRG. Like, what can I offer to them? But I bet you learned and experienced so much that you could have never otherwise known. Right. And to me, that is the beauty and value of diversity initiatives and being in organizations and communities that are diverse. You get to learn things that you otherwise would have never known, being involved with the Pride Parade and being involved with the Latino group. And those are the things for me, too, that just kind of continue to drive me and motivate me because those are the things that enrich my life on a much more personal level beyond just the business. And then when you think about, wow, I get to do this in the context of my job. Wow, this is a win-win. It's a win-win. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. So in talking about, you know, the personal influence you've had, we often, particularly in the DEI space, talk about authenticity, right? And giving people the freedom to be their authentic selves. So how have you personally navigated your own authenticity in the corporate workplace? and in leadership ranks in a way that has been well for you and allowed you to be your best self, as your mom told you to be, but also provide your peers, your colleagues, employees, an opportunity to have the same freedom and to feel like they're valued by Roche and your organization by being their authentic selves. Yeah, for me, I, I really, Angela, I had to learn how to balance and negotiate what I call the perfection paradox. <laughs> and I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but let me just try to break it down a little bit. It's true that, you know, 
if you increase perfection, you'll get results. And, you know, my parents said, be the best. And I took it literally. So you do get that upswell if you focus on being perfect and you get perfect results. On the other side of the equation, though, increased perfection really diminishes your connections and your quality relationships with people. And, you know, I, I felt like I needed to be totally prepared and buttoned up, not only because of my parents' conditioning, because as you said earlier, I was always the only black person in the room. Absolutely. So, I mean, I felt like I, I was representing or had to represent. So I, had, I felt like I had to be totally buttoned up, totally prepared. I could make no mistakes. I had to be just spot on all the time. But what I came to learn and understand is that being perfect or striving to be perfect, because I'm not perfect, <laughs> you know, let's just be clear about that. But striving to be perfect, it made me less approachable. It made me, it set unrealistic expectations for my team. And I got that feedback. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like, you're so formal, you're so buttoned up. And and I think it's because, you know, being perfect kind of shows up in the way we walk, we talk, we you know, people just understood that they were on my team. I had expectations that were in the stratosphere, right? right? But that put a lot of pressure on people. Yep. And and so what I've discovered is that success in business, but even more importantly in life, just comes down to connections and relationships. And so for that, Angela, you have to embrace being vulnerable. Mm. You have to em- embrace imperfection because by definition, there are no perfect people, right? right. So you're, de- you're dealing with imperfection. And so you have to embrace that. And you have to focus on working from a space of creativity than reactivity. And a lot of times when you're, you're re- you know, when you're in that space of you're the only black person in the room, you're reacting to stimuli, right? And so, and so what I did, what, what I realized that, I mean, it, it took me a while to kind of make that connection and that journey. But once I did, you know, I really felt like it was. I became a different leader, and I became a better leader. And people said, "Wow, Rod is different. He's 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 better." And that actually drew more quality talent towards me. And Angela, what I found out is that you get the results anyway, yeah. but it just takes a lot less energy. It takes less energy. People aren't as intimidated, and it's just a better environment. Yeah. And so. Why not just embrace that imperfection? Why not do it? And and you create better, less stress for yourself, less stress for your your employees, and you give people a chance to just be who they are. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it makes perfect sense to me. And in fact, I'm gonna say again, I needed to hear that. So thank you. <laughs> that that that's real. I think that is a real, and I think many of us. I I know I'm a absolute person who is always striving for perfection. And oftentimes it drives people crazy. My husband and my child will tell me all the time, like, mom, are you serious? Like, so, so I think there is a very good balance of striving to be the best, but also realizing nobody's perfect. Neither are you. Right. And that people are going to give you the best they can. And either that's good enough or it's not. Right. So I I appreciate that. And as we begin to wrap up, I just want to finally ask you, what are a few tools and tips as you're looking into going? Going into, you know, going toward the rainbows and the pots of gold as you enter your retirement phase, which is happening at the end of this month, right? Right, right. Wow. So this may be one of the last things you do as a full representative of Roche Diagnostics be- 
before you enter the retirement phase. So as you look back over your your time, your career, your history, particularly in Indiana, you spent a quite a bit of time here. What would you advise or suggest to current Indiana leaders, healthcare leaders or industry leaders who are serious or want to be serious about making sure their work environment, their leadership ranks, their rank and file, their employees are more diverse, are experiencing a more diverse and equitable and inclusive environment. What would you advise the people who really want to make sure that when their company looks back five years ago, they see progress, that there's a continuum of movement and improvement? What are your thoughts? Yeah. As I said earlier, I, I think effective diversity, equity, inclusion must be based on three principles, and it's leadership, it is commitment, and it's culture. And so in that regard, I would say the first tip I would have for people who want to really pursue this journey in earnest is to start at the top. Start at the top and make sure that you get all of your leaders involved. You know, that's the that's the first thing you have to do. And then second, as I as I alluded earlier too, create this ecosystem. Create a diversity, equity, inclusion ecosystem and a community that is committed and fosters active listening, open dialogue, and lifelong learning. And I just think it's so important that, you know, we all as leaders listen to our employees and find ways to encourage that open dialogue at all levels of the organization. And I talked to you earlier about the unity circles that I worked on with Candy, G, and many others, but I kicked off a lot of those sessions with our employees. And, you know, obviously I'm a senior leader in the organization, but I'm also a black man. I've also been stopped by police. So when we were talking about George Floyd, you know, I shared my personal experiences, you know, as a black man by being stopped and, you know, different situations that I've had with the police. And, you know, it was really interesting. I had so many of my white colleagues come up to me and say, Rod, thank you so much for your honesty and your transparency, your vulnerability. That resonated with me in a different way. And I, I really have, I come, I'm coming away from this discussion with a different perspective because you were willing to share. And so I just think that's so important that we do that, we foster that. And, and then I would just say the last thing is, the last tip I would share is that you have to implement uh, effective uh, recruiting and hiring programs and also these mentor and sponsorship programs because we talked earlier about relationships. And I know a lot of your career was built on relationships. And it's those connections and those relationships that creates that positive environment, that glue, that affirmation, the recognition, the celebration. We all need all of that in our lives, you know, because there's enough headwind and enough obstacles to help you get through those bad times. You need that connectivity to people, the relationship, sometimes the pats on the back. And and most importantly, people realize that you you don't have to be perfect because I think a lot of people, you know, look at me and my career where I am and they think I just like dropped in off of a boat or a plane right, just right. like I am now. And it's like, no, it taken me 42 years to, right. to get to where I am now. I did not drop off a plane looking like this, right. you know, so, so uh, I think it's just so important that, you know, you have those dialogues and, and so that, that would be what I leave. But most of all, just the persistence and the doing the work and showing up, I think it's, it's so important. Yeah, well, 
We thank you for being here with us today, for sharing your nuggets, looking back on an awesome career and sharing your experiences with us. More, we want to wish you all the best in retirement. Enjoy that staycation, that that never-ending staycation that you have the opportunity to go on. And mostly, thank you for all that you've given to Indiana, to Roche, to our community and making it a better community for all of us. We thank you for all you've done and good luck to you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you again to Rod Cotton, and thanks to you for joining us on this 23rd episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the central Indiana business community. Thank you.